Hey, it's Don Coscarelli, filmmaker. I uh, just wrote a book. Check it out. It's called Fiction Tales from the World of Phantasm. And uh, it can teach you all the things that you never knew about the Phantasm film series. A lot of interesting stuff. Horror, violence, not much sex. Check it out. Now available on Amazon, paperback, and Kindle. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. On the last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin and Roger were called in to orate about Arthur Hiller's The Hospital. I actually think George C. Scott gives one of the best performances I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's one of the best performances I've ever seen. Understood the savagery of the early American West in Olzana's raid. There came that moment where I couldn't believe what my eyes were looking at Mm. when he was showing the extent to which the Apaches would go. And made me really happy by covering steel. And I need to put together a team of the best guys out there. The Magnificent Seven of Construction. And now we bring you The After Show, your backstage pass to exclusive content, answers to your burning questions, and even more film discussion. As always, it's your girl Gala, ready to hang iron and get this job done. On today's After Show, I'm bringing you guys something a little different. As you know, there are a lot of movies that Quentin and Roger watch for the podcast. Most of them are aired on the main show, some are discussed and then vaulted, and others never even make it to the microphone. This season, a few heavy hitters slip through the cracks. Today, I've been tasked by Quentin and Roger to dig a little deeper on these movies. To do that, I've enlisted an expert du jour. Joining me in the studio today is Mark Hoyk, film historian and new Beverly blog contributor. Not only did he write director dossiers for Robert Rodriguez's interview show, The Director's Chair, but he also did the first in-depth interview with Cooley High star Cynthia Davis. He's written on every topic, from how USA's night flight rescued the punk rock drama Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, to exploring the parallels between Quentin's favorite adult film, Hot Summer City, and his own Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And you best believe that when an episode of our podcast comes out, my inbox is full from him with even more information and facts about actors, locations, VHS trivia, and little-known knowledge that is just too good to pass up. Not only that, but Mark has had his fingers in a few apple pies when it comes to this movie, and I can't wait to cut us all a big slice with a side of cheddar cheese and dig on in. So, what are we going to be discussing? The oddity that is 1980's The Apple, directed by Menachem Golan. In 1994, the world is controlled by one power. The Apple.
eagle-eared listeners will remember the first time this movie was referenced. Roger and Quentin rocked out to the theme song in the teaser trailer for our show. And I think some listeners have been waiting for the apple to make its appearance as it has a huge cult following. So, as we wrap up season one, you may be asking yourself, where is the discussion on the apple? Well, have no fear, because I'm bringing the apple to you on today's after show with the help of my expert. The first official mention of this flick comes from episode 11, when Jacqueline Coley was a customer in our store. She was technically our very first customer. Originally, Jacqueline's episode was supposed to be slotted in about five episodes before, but American Giallo has to come out around Halloween. In that episode, Quentin, Roger, and Jacqueline watched the Paragon tape for Hostages, which had a ton of great trailers at the front of it, including not only American Nitro, which we covered in episode 14, but also the trailer for The Apple. I think you'll remember them going, Hey, 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 BIM all the way! (laughs) Hey, 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 BIM all the way! As soon as the group saw the trailer, we knew we had to watch. However, the tape wasn't in the archives, so Quentin asked me if I could source it. That happens every now and then, and they're not usually that hard to find. Well, let me tell you. This tape took me so long to find. It took me maybe six months, and I learned while trying to buy the tape that it is a highly beloved and coveted tape and that no one in their right mind will let go of their copy of the Apple. This fan base is diehard. Yes, and this is definitely a 2000s phenomenon that the Apple came out in 1980, but realistically speaking, outside of maybe a few diehards, the the cult around this movie did not really come to fruition until around 2003. And I am going to blatantly take a large amount of credit for that. I can't wait to hear the story behind that. As you guys could have guessed, I did find a tape. I was looking for the apple for months and I couldn't find it. So I asked all of my friends for help, and I mean all of them. They were scouring back alleys, tape swaps, and thrift stores. Then, finally, a friend of mine named Walker up in Prince Edward Island went on a Canadian VHS trading Facebook group and found someone willing to give theirs up. The person would not ship internationally, so the guy shipped it to Walker, Walker shipped it to me, and then I gave it to Quentin for him and my dad to watch. Walker, I owe you one. The Apple is a Paragon home videotape. Like always, we have to start out with reading the back of the box. Here's Roger with a very detailed reading. Okay, so I'm holding the box of the apple in my hands, and it is a beautiful Paragon Video Productions box, and we just love these Paragon branding. It's just gorgeous. And what I love about it is it just has on the front of it the poster of the movie, or at least one of the posters of the movie, the apple, and it's like a big apple. But the box is green, so it's almost like a green apple. And right up above on the top, The Power of Rock in 1994, which already feels like ancient history. It's like people were (laughs) listening to this podcast were born long after that in the 2010s. (laughs) Uh, It's got all the credits of everybody, um, you know, on the the front. It's a Canon film release. And uh, on the back, well, the back is pretty simple. So I'm just going to go ahead and give it a read. It's pretty darn short. The Apple, it's a great uh, picture of a bunch of concert footage that they have in it. In quotes, in bold, the sensation of the 1980 Cannes Film Festival, end quote. And I don't doubt that for a second. 
And then underneath that, it says, in the 60s, it was acid rock. In the 70s, it was disco. In the 80s, it was punk. Now, in the 90s, it's the new wave. The Apple celebrates New York life and youth of 1994 in this futuristic rock musical, says Variety, Mel Tobias. Running time, approximately 90 minutes. PG, parental guidance suggested. And uh, this is from this tape is from 1985 Paragon Home Video, which that, in those days was uh, centered in Las Vegas, Nevada, probably for tax reasons. And now, time for the conversation about the Apple with Mark. What happened was I was assistant manager at the New Art Theater. I started there in May of '99. And around 2002, they started doing uh, Friday Midnights. Saturday Midnights were for the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and they had experimented off and on. And then uh, the booker, Mark Vallon, I think he's still at Landmark Theaters today. Very great curatorial tastes. He had previously worked at the Scala in England, which was a legendary uh, rep theater that did a lot of great you know, horror and exploitation shows. And Mark and I would, you know, talk about movies to play. So we had a whole year of 2002 doing decent business on Midnight's. And during that time, I was able to buy a 35 trailer of the Apple on eBay. And I was running it just for shits and giggles. Just because you wanted to. Yes. uh, Running it on the trailer reel for the Midnight's, running it in front of Rocky periodically. And it was when people were like, when are we going to see this? So Mark Vallon looked in and found out that MGM had inherited the rights and they had uh, a recently made print because MGM inherited like over a thousand titles from all these other companies that had gone bankrupt, like they had gotten the Canon Library because of uh, John Carlo Peretti trying to take over the studio in the 90s. And they got like all these other defunct studios of the 80s, like uh, Atlantic Releasing, Island, Alive, uh, Nelson Entertainment. And consequently, when they got those libraries, they started striking new prints of those films because they'd been out of circulation and they were also making new masters for home video. So they had a print and no one had played the Apple since it had first opened because it had a legendarily terrible opening. It opened at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood in November of 1980, back when it was still called the Paramount. On the opening day, they were giving away copies of the soundtrack album. After the first show was over, people were flinging the albums at the screen. They were so uh, (laughs) unhappy with the film. So the theater staff tried a different tack and gave the albums out after the movie was over at the next show. Nobody would take them. So there were boxes of the soundtrack that had sat at the Egyptian for months until the canon people finally hauled them away. So based off of the play of the trailer, I convinced Mark to book it, and we played it in February of 2003. And at a midnight show, right? At a, a Friday midnight show. And we had 
you know, we did not know what was going to happen. We just knew we were able to say, you know, first screening and, you know, however many decades. And there had been a smattering of cable play for it also, because as far as I know, the Apple never went into syndication. So after that CBS late movie broadcast, that was pretty much it. But around 2000, around 2002, 2003, it was beginning to get shown on cable again. But so and this was the live journal era. So I had a live journal and I periodically looked around to see if there were other Apple fans and found a few and added them to my friends list. So the screening happens at that time, the new art had a capacity of 450, and we had 366 people show up. It was a house record. A lot of uh, the cognoscenti were there. Uh, Patton Oswalt was there, and I remember at, after the movie was over, he came walking up to me with tears in his eyes. <laughs> it, and it was huge, and it, it it did so well that MGM said to Mark, well, you know, should we do other screenings? And yes. Uh, so they they struck a second print for Platter Houses and Landmark gave it some more midnight shows in the other cities where they did uh, repertory or midnights. And that's where the cult started beginning. The movie really found its audience, I guess, at midnight screenings. Yes. What do you think resonated specifically like at that time period? Like why didn't it hit when it came out? Well, when it came out, 1980 was, I wouldn't say the year disco died, but when it was getting clubbed to death, in, in 1980, there had been the release of uh, Can't Stop the Music, which had gotten savaged heavily. There was the release of Xanadu, which of course. was a huge soundtrack seller, but the movie had, didn't fare well either uh that i believe that was also the summer of the disco sucks explosion in chicago where between a double header game this dj had said yo bring your disco records and we're gonna blow them up and yeah it's it's a horrifying thing to watch because it sounds funny but there, a lot of people who were there said, you know, people were bringing records that were not disco. They were R&B records. And you began to realize, oh, this is racism. Yeah, you know, people, because, yes, the the rock contingent was coming for disco because this was the music of blacks and Hispanics and minorities and trying to kill it off. So anything that was, you know, even disco adjacent was not going to be popular. And the Apple had a, not many people know about its immediate history in that the Apple went to Cannes three times. Uh, Go on a Globus took it to Cannes in 1979 when they were trying to attract uh, interest. You know, they hadn't shot it yet, but they were trying to get pre-sales and it didn't happen. So then they went back to Cannes a second time in 1980 when the film was ready and couldn't 
draw up any interest in it. Okay, so that's when it was the sensation of the 1980 Cannes Film Festival, according to the Paragon back in the box. <laughs> well, yes, uh, that well, that is a uh, that is a uh, Bowiehoo on uh, Cannes' part because when they went to Cannes the second time, uh, they were billing it as an eight million dollar musical when it probably only cost one million. And then in 1981, even after it had played you know, America and died, they went to Cannes a third time with the Apple trying to sell it to the remainder of the world. So this was already kind of damaged goods before it had even been constructed. When Quentin gave me the thumbs up to bring in our expert Mark to discuss the history of the Apple, he shared a story with Roger and I about one of the large-scale screenings that went terribly wrong. So... I've become friends with Yoram Goblis. He's actually is uh, his whole family is, is, is friends with uh, my wife's family. They've known each other for years. In fact, the whole reason I came to Israel was when Yoram invited me for Inglorious Bastards. So I've had dinner with him quite a few times. I've asked, talked to him about Menachem Golem, who I ne- never got a chance to meet, and the whole glory of Canon Pictures. And one of the stories he tells, and I don't remember. I don't remember what festival it was. I don't remember if it was Toronto or if it was Venice or Berlin, but he's just made the apple and they're going to like premiere it at this festival or it's a big, big screening. The place is sold out and they start showing the apple and the audience is laughing it off the screen. And so Yoram Goblis, I'm like, God, this is terrible. <laughs> so there's like, <laughs> I like the the grave kind of. You know. <laughs> oh my God. So it's like, okay, we just got to endure this. So we have to sit there and endure this terrible beating we're going to get. <laughs> so they're taking the terrible beating. Nobody's noticing the Menachem Golem's not there. Then somebody's like, taps Yoram Goblis on the shoulder. And goes, I think you better come outside. Yeah, I think you need. We need you. We need you outside. He's, 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 it's Menachem. He's on the roof. Menachem's on the roof. What do you mean the Menachem's on the roof? He's on the. He's on the roof. Yeah. He's talking about jumping. Yeah, come, come, avert a headline. <laughs> oh my goodness! So he gets. He's, oh my goodness! So he gets up and they come. Menachem's on the roof. He's got one leg over the He's rail. He's going to jump. He's going to jump. I, I, this is it. <laughs> this is it. This is it. <laughs> I suspected I was in deep shit. I am. I'm going. Fuck it. This is it. I put my heart out there. I make this movie and they laugh. I'm a yeah. joke. I've stood naked in front of all of them and they've laughed at me. They're <laughs> laughing it off the screen. It's just a big joke to them. I've, I've had it. I'm tired. I'm done. I'm gonna jump. It would be great if this was at Cannes. That makes the story really yeah. good. Deville works also, yeah. but <laughs> and Joram's like, "Hey, Menachem, <laughs> you're taking this too seriously. Just you know, you make a movie. This one works. This one doesn't. Okay, yeah, he's having a very measured. <laughs> okay, I guess this one didn't work. Okay, so we'll do one that works next time. All right, we always a new movie." It's always a new movie. It's just a movie. Yeah, get your leg. Let's go get a drink. Come on. Get your your leg back over the side. It's it's a movie. You make another movie. You make a better movie. He's lucky that choir boy guy wasn't there yet. You're wasting our time. 
And they talked Menachem down. <laughs> he lived to make many more movies. Since that showing, the Apple has obviously found its stride in midnight showings and is now just a fan favorite. In the midnight shows and that, again, the, the cable airings were trickling out, but it hadn't. The midnight shows are what gave it critical mass and this and also the Internet, because yeah. now the fans could find each other. It all, it all just exploded in late 2003 to, to the point where it had been this dormant property and now suddenly there was heat on it. And I got to have some talks with MGM because they were contemplating doing a DVD of it because MGM was doing really well with physical media. They were one of the best – labels out there. There was a fellow in charge of special features named Greg Carson. Uh, he's mostly retired now, but he is he was one of the best. He was doing amazing special features for MGM, especially because since they had all of these forgotten film libraries, they were they were actively saying, oh yeah, this movie's got a following. This was a big video seller. You know, let's let's do a nice DVD of this. They did Killer DVDs of uh, Valley Girl, you know, the horror movies they had, you know, really giving them nice treatment, really going the extra mile when most of the other studios were just doing the hits. So they were ready to do something nice for the Apple's release. And then in 2004, the Sony occupation happened. <laughs> uh, it's one of the, one of the darkest chapters of film history. Um and without going into too large of a digression, basically, Sony had been chasing MGM since the late 80s. And because basically they wanted James Bond. Mm-hmm. I mean, who doesn't? They missed multiple opportunities to get MGM. You know, they got either they got outbid or, you know, uh, one of my friends who used to work at Sony <laughs> Always like to say, uh, Kurt Kerkorian has two press releases in his desk at all times. One, that he's selling MGM. The other, he's buying it back. <laughs> so 2004 was when the Blu-ray versus HD DVD format war began. And Sony figured, if we get James Bond, we're going to win the format war. So MGM was in trouble, and it got bought by this consortium of investors and Sony joined the consortium. They were a minority stakeholder, so they didn't even actually own the studio. But because they were a studio with Columbia Pictures, they said, well, we'll take over all the operation. You know, we'll, we'll eliminate the redundancy. So they, they fired everybody from the home video department. They shut down the distribution department and took it over. And when they did... All of the cult movies that MGM was doing on DVD died. So did the Apple die at that point? Well, they did put it out, but with no features. You know, okay. there was, you know, there had been talk of trying to, you know, do some fun stuff. And then it just came out, you know, bare bones as, as it was. So it was a no fun time there until, until finally Sony got kicked out of the consortium. I'm gonna be honest, guys. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have some Apple fans. Mark might jump across the table at me. I don't really like the Apple. Okay. I'm gonna be honest. Okay. I don't really like it. <laughs> uh, Mark's fine with it. He's like saying he's fine with it, but I see the daggers in his eyes right now. 
<laughs> Mark and I are going to go out to the parking lot and like fight over it. We're going like, to get in a fist fight or something. I wouldn't have been throwing the soundtrack at the screen, but the music doesn't resonate with me so much. I really do like new wave musicals. Like it's one of, so I was really excited to watch The Apple. And then it's just like I was watching, I was like, I don't like this music. But what I do, the music I actually do like are like the slow songs that the the boyfriend and girlfriend sing at the beginning and then the song that he's like singing like when they break up. So I feel like I'm like totally. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I highly recommend uh, going to YouTube. There is a YouTube series there called Suddenly Soundtracks uh, hosted by Chris Clark. And I did an episode of Suddenly Soundtracks with uh the great uh, Whitney Seibold, who is a former projectionist at uh, the New Beverly Cinema and is a terrific film critic who does uh, the critically acclaimed podcast with William Bibiani, and Alonzo Duralde, who is uh, the mo- should, if not should be, the most beloved critic in America now that Roger Ebert is gone. He's he is known as El Mero Mero de Navidad, the expert on Christmas movies. He's written uh, Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas and also 101 Must-See Movies for Gay Men. He's got another book coming out at the end of this year. So the four of us went through the entire Apple soundtrack and rated which songs were our favorites. So which one's your favorite? My favorite is Speed. Yeah, Mark, you're not alone. Quentin also loves that song. Uh, that, I, you know, that That is the song that could exist outside of this movie you know that you know you could easily see somebody using it to you know underscore a mashup of their favorite scenes from uh, the fast and furious saga <laughs> <laughs> they're like a league of legends compilation their overwatch play of the games exactly exactly and consequently the the ballads between uh, alfie and bb uh did not score very oh, well. See, yeah, that's what I like. That's actually what I like about the music. Well, uh, well, uh, uh, love the universal melody, which is the song that they perform at what is basically the Eurovision contest. Uh, I remarked on the podcast that every time I hear the opening strains of it, for a moment, I feel like it's going to go into Chevy Van by Sammy Johns. <laughs> <laughs> For me, though, the other thing that I really like about this movie is Vlad Akshabal. Oh. Okay, so I, I love him. I think he's a great actor. He's in a lot of the Ken Russell films, which is probably why I like him so much. But seeing him in this movie, I'm going to be honest, it started making me think, oh, Ken Russell could have done it better. <laughs> and I started feeling bad because I was like, I see Vladek in it. And I'm like, oh. And it feels kind of like it has like a little bit of that Ken Russell, like Tommy a little bit. Oh yeah. But it doesn't hit the same mark for me as that. So but yeah, Vladek Shibal, he's fantastic. He plays the devil in the movie. Yes. Because it's like this allegory for Adam and Eve and God and the devil and yes, selling he, your soul. He's Mr. Boogaloo, the Mr. head Boogaloo. of uh BIM, which is Boogaloo International Music. So. <laughs> I love that name Boogaloo. Before we go to commercial break. Mark brought the original review from Variety when the Apple opened in 1980 from film critic Berg. If musicals are something of an on-screen rarity these days, the Apple is enough to encourage death to the entire genre. 
this superficial look at life in 1994, where an evil form of BIM music begins to rule the entire world, is a shockingly amateurish affair that offends for both its incredibly poor execution and colossal waste of money and talent. Producers Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus are clearly aiming squarely at the huge teen record-buying audience, but it's not going to work with this disastrous canon release. If the Apple were a Broadway musical, it would have closed out of town and faded into memory. (laughs) Because it's a film, the few talented people associated with it will probably be stuck watching it on The Late Show one day. Now, a word from our sponsors. vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoke Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. And we're back. Before we get back to the discussion with Mark, I found a review of The Apple by film critic Franklin Browner on the Internet Archive. This review was originally aired on local Manitoba radio as a part of Franklin's Alone in the Cinema radio show. Listen now as Franklin speaks. Hello, fellow cineasts and moviegoers. This is Franklin Brunner, head critic of the Winnipeg City Press, and this week we have a real treat coming to our fair city. Opening at the new Town 8 multiplex, in an auditorium as large as the living room of my North End apartment, is a film which I am ethically unable to review. Why? Because, in full disclosure, I cannot be impartial for I was in the film. Not only was I in the film, but the director, Madman Menachem Golan, became a close and personal friend over the course of the production. I owe the man my life. And that is another story for a book to be published after my death. Suffice it to say that the man's integrity and compassion is only exceeded by his ambition as a filmmaker. The world of the apple is a visual nod to another close pal, cartoon artist Stefano Tamburini, who, after the Berlinade, thought it would be a fun gas to slip me three hits of lysergic acid and take me to an orgy. There, I met Ken Russell regular Vladek Shebal, who I call the best pole you'll ever know. We hit it off, and the next thing I knew, I was in Menahem Golan's pad. He was a fan of mine since my glowing review of another musical of his, Casablan. Tamburini's LSD was some kind of Italian government batch, and I spent the rest of my four days of the production frying my eyes out. The only thing I remember of the entire experience was the color and music and general cacophony of textures. The movie is garish and embodies this decadent age we find ourselves in. Design has become inbred, plastic, and flamboyant. It's Byzantium of the future. It's sin on a billboard. It's paradise lost. It's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And the experience of being inside and a part of the film was life-changing and life-affirming, I might add. So much so 
that I was unable to bring myself to watch the movie during the Toronto press screening last Tuesday. Who knows what the movie is? But this reviewer can tell you that the experience of making it was sublime. The Apple opens this Friday at the new Town 8 Multiplex. The auditorium may be small, but the movie sure is big. Thank you, Franklin, wherever you are, for sharing your experiences on the set of The Apple. Mark, will you give me just a little bit of background on Paragon? Uh, Paragon was a Las Vegas-based video company, and it was operated by adult film uh, people. And they had two labels. Uh, There was Paragon and there was King of Video. And King of Video was kind of a public domain label, so they mostly released the same stuff that was popping up on all the other public domain labels like Alice Sweet Alice and Psychomania and Horror Express, whereas uh, Paragon, their, their primary supplier was Canon. You know, that, uh, and Paragon came at kind of the dawn of home video. They weren't the first label. Arguably, the first label was Magnetic Video, which was a, which was an offshoot of 20th. And then after that, there was uh, VCI, which was out of Oklahoma and run by the Blair family. So Paragon was one of the first, you know, upstart independent labels to come out. They had they had a deal with Canon. They also had uh, deals with a couple other small distributors. And so a lot of their early releases are pretty interesting because Besides uh, some choice Canon stuff like uh, the Apple and Silent Night, Bloody Night, and New Year's Evil came out initially through them, and Schizoid. They also had stuff like uh, Ruckus and Matic County with Dirk Benedict and uh, Pigs by Mark Lawrence under its alternate title Daddy's Deadly Darling with some newly shot prologue footage in front of it. Uh, it had uh, some, some interesting Australian films. Other independents, uh, stuff like uh, the Navy versus the Night Monsters with Mamie Van Doren. Oh, uh, Boarding House, the what, the early shot on video uh, horror film that somehow got blown up to thirty five and released in theaters. <laughs> uh, that was that was another one of theirs. So they made it into about the mid eighties and then you know, closed up shop. And by that time, uh, Canon was in bed heavily with both MGM and Warner Brothers and was kind of reparceling out some of those early Paragon titles to them. And what about the relationship between Golan Globus and Canon? Uh, Golan and Globus are so closely associated with Canon, uh, many people don't realize they didn't start the company. That Canon was initially uh, created in 1967 on the East Coast by a couple of guys named uh, Dennis Friedland and Christopher Dewey. And Canon started out as an an exploitation distribution company. They made some of their own movies, but mostly they acquired others. And they had had some interesting stuff in in their early days. They released uh, Jodorowsky's uh, first movie, Fondo and Lees. They released some great British horror films like Beast in the Cellar and The Blood on Satan's Claw and The Crucible of Horror. But the biggest hit they had was Joe, 
Mm. And this was and this was pure dumb luck for them because they had already made one movie with John G. Avildsen called uh, Guess What We Learned in School Today, and it had been a fob. And Joe was initially uh, called The Gap, and it was this big kind of epic about you know a disintegrating uh, upper middle class family and. They had brought in an editor named uh, William Sachs to cut down the film, and he zeroed in on the fact that the most interesting character was Joe, played by Peter Boyle. So he cut nearly an hour out of the movie in order to get to Joe quicker and make him the main character. Wow. And that was Cannon's biggest hit. But they were just kind of limping along in the 70s, releasing sex movies and martial arts movies and, you know, just anything they could get their hands on. Now, meanwhile, Menahem Golan, his real name is actually Globus. Oh, OK. Uh, uh, Menahem Globus and uh, Yoram Globus were cousins. And he he gave himself the name Golan because of the Golan Heights. He wanted he figured it sounded mightier that way. You know, it kind of does sound mighty. And he was already making films in Israel, and some of them were trickling out to the United States. And he he and Globus were actively trying to break into America. So what they were doing were making films and trying to sell them to other other companies at the time. They they did a movie called Diamonds with Robert Shaw that uh, Avco Embassy put out. They did uh, a gangster movie called Lepke with Tony Curtis that Warner Brothers put out. Uh, they they made a a Jesus conspiracy movie called The Passover Plot with Zalman King when he was still acting before he became you know, the king of uh, 90s uh, cable erotica. That movie sounds kind of right up my alley, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, they made a couple of uh, uh, Western shot in Israel, God's Gun and uh, Kid Vengeance, both with Lee Van Cleef. But after a while, they realized, OK, you know, we, we have got to get our own distribution channel. So before they bought Canon, they made a deal with a West German tax shelter named uh, NF Garia. And NF Garia produced a lot of interesting movies uh, for for other people. So among their credits are uh, Fassbender's Despair, uh, Billy Wilder's Fedora, Robert Aldrich's Twilight's Last Gleaming. That's a lot of really good directors. Yeah. Um, uh, the American Success Company by William Richard, who did uh, Winter Kills. And so Golan and Gary uh, partnered on The Apple and a an earlier film called The Magician of Lublin, which was this big kind of – it was an art film based on a book by uh, Isaac Bash of a singer. And he, they had a huge cast. It was Alan Arkin, Valerie Perrine, Louise Fletcher. Uh, I, believe, oh, I love Louise Fletcher. I believe Kate Bush might have contributed a song to it when you know she was still a teenager. It's, it, it, it is listed as a credit of hers. Infamously, though, N.F. Garia – not only you know, financed the Apple, they also financed Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, <laughs> leading to the maxim, never let the Germans finance a musical. <laughs> so what, uh, Golan made these two movies with Garia and was likely trying to find you – know, he wanted to sell these to a studio the way that he had sold Lepke to Warner Brothers, but that wasn't happening. So he – uh, Golan and Globus found that Canon was on the ropes, 
and they did an interesting strategy. They they didn't have the money to buy Canon at the time, but they said, look, we've noticed that a lot of the movies you have haven't been sold overseas. And they said, well, you know, nobody wants these movies. And Golan was saying, hey, I sold my Hebrew language movies in Africa. I can sell anything. So give give me the rights to sell your movies overseas and let me keep a cut of it. And he made enough money from selling their movies overseas that they wound up buying the company. Menachem Golan made this movie. Why? Just why, Mark? I just have to ask that question. Just why? Like, was it a passion project? Do you know? Uh, I think it was because before he made the Apple, he had made another musical previously that got released in the United States. He made a musical called Casablan, which was shot simultaneously in Hebrew and English. And it was set in Israel and kind of a star-crossed lovers uh, extravaganza. And MGM released it in America. You know, it didn't do very well, but he he was able to get that out. So he had done, you know, big you know song and dance stuff before. And apparently he had seen an early creation of an aborted stage musical that uh, Kobe and Iris Recht had written, mm. uh, which they had based on uh, meeting this uh, French record executive uh, named uh, Eddie Barclay, you know, that, you know, they didn't get along with him at all and they found him to be kind of a demonic character. So they wrote they wrote this musical and had and had songs for it ready and I guess Golan got a look at it and was really excited by the prospect and and went with it. It's one of the earliest uh, performances by Catherine Mary Stewart. And she's and, beautiful. In the oh, yeah. A, a total sweetheart. And, you know, she went from this you know, to Night of the Comet. Which I love Night of the Comet because my man's in it. Uh, and reported, reportedly, I... I think Sage Stallone once told me that somehow Sylvester caught a glimpse of her in the apple. I don't know how he saw it, but off of that, cast her for a small role in Nighthawks. Mm. And uh, some kudos should go out to Grace Kennedy, too, because she doesn't have as much screen time as she should, but she is actually doing her own singing in this movie, whereas a singer named Mary Hyland is dubbing all of uh, Catherine Mary Stewart's oh, performances. So that, that's that's not Catherine doing the singing. So, Mark, you mentioned that there was an alternate print that surfaced and then disappeared. Tell me about it. So the Apple became this midnight sensation and initially there were only two prints there was the vault print and there was a print for platter houses you know that they could you know cut the heads and tails off and run and then splice back together and uh, the Cine family in LA had booked the movie and at the 11th hour MGM said, oh, bo- both our prints are occupied we found this other print that we haven't inspected and we don't really have time to inspect it would you be willing to take that and they said sure so the print screened and i wasn't present for the screening but there were a whole bunch of eyewitnesses including alonzo duralde who noticed that 
there was extra material in the movie. Oh, okay. So they so they called me up and said, "Hey, while we still have this print, you're the Apple expert, you know, can you inspect it?" So I took it back to the New Art after hours and I screened it for myself and sure enough, uh, the Apple is 5 reels on 35 and reels 4 and 5 had additional material. And so this was probably the version that was screened at Cannes but altered before theatrical release. What uh, what was on those reels that was extra? Do well, you in reel 4 is a musical number called Coming which uh, Grace Kennedy sings. <laughs> And as Alonzo has pointed out, is pretty much a direct ripoff of a Donna Summer song called Wasted. Uh, So you said there was also maybe something in Real 5? Well, so in Real 4, Coming For You plays and, you know, there's that moment where the the, the song is interrupted with uh, Alfie – you know, breaking in on BB and she's, you know, drugged and in bed with somebody. And in – in the alternate print, this happens two more times oh. with different people. Like, you know, he it's almost like it's a hallucination sequence. So it's like he's so he busts in on her a second time and now she's in bed with, you know, someone different, else. Yeah. And a third time. And it's like, you know, a, a, a group outing. And she's just with everyone. Yes. And and uh, the sequence might, you know, the, the Apple is rated PG, but the coming sequence I don't know how they managed to, to get it. I think whoever was on the board at the time was not looking at some of the choreography. Like maybe they fell in that number. In that number. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there may be more of that. And then in reel five, there is a number called "Child of Love," which was severely truncated in. Uh, in the in the final release version, that there's just like a couple of verses, and then you know the the chorus keeps looping, and this takes place after uh, Alfie and BB have temporarily escaped the clutches of uh, Mister Boogaloo and have taken up in a hippie commune that is run by uh, Joss Ackland. Uh, And so it's showing them reuniting, and in the alternate cut, it's showing you know them. You know, marrying, having a child, and a child, you know, reaching, growing. growing. And in the final movie, it's just like they reunite and bam, oh, now we have an eight year old. Yeah, you know, there's a time cut, and the time cut is actually really jarring. So I feel like if that extra footage had been in there in that real five, I might have enjoyed it a little bit more. The concept was invented by uh, Kobe and Iris Recht and Menachem Golan optioned it from them. He brought in uh, the composer George S. Clinton, not not the godfather of funk George Clinton, but George S. Clinton has done some great film scores since, like uh, the Mortal Kombat movies. And, but this is one of his earliest credits uh, to revise the music into English and add, add some more material. Uh, it was shot in West Germany with uh, a lot of uh, students from uh, an English language school there. It was, you know, briefly released in a few cities, and then pretty much just went straight to VHS. The brief uh, CBS airing, and then kind of just sat around gathering dust on video shelves until until the midnight shows. Until the midnight shows. There is a scene 
that is still never been used because if you get the soundtrack album, there is a, a song on the album that is not in the film or at least not completely. There is a number called Creation that is spoken sung by Joss Ackland. And it's basically supposed to be a literal Adam and Eve style prologue where you know, he, he is playing God and Alfie and Bibi are Adam and Eve and the first temptation of Mr. Boogaloo as the devil and uh, his assistant as the snake. Does that come early in the... The shooting of the sequence is documented in Wikipedia. Apparently, it didn't go well. So there are publicity photos that were released of that sequence. I've seen them on eBay. I didn't buy them. I was a fool. So it was so this scene was shot. It might have been a prologue at the beginning of the movie, or it may have been a prologue to the Apple number. Uh, mm. In the middle of the film, mm-hmm. because Alfie has his hallucination about hell, and so it very easily could have been you know, him you know, remembering the pre- a previous life. It's been really gratifying to see the cult explode, because whatever you may think about the movie, to, to quote Quentin, he was uh, being interviewed once and— about Brian De Palma and the topic of the bonfire of the vanities came up and Quentin said that it's not a good movie, but hacks do not make movies like that. You know, that it is clearly, you know, an intention behind it, that it is not just uh, a sleepwalk. Menahem Golan had an idea. Whether it was the right idea is up for debate, but damn it, he committed to that idea to the bitter end. You know, there is a vision behind the apple. So you you have to respect its commitment. And I think a lot of the the cult that has come to embrace it there it certainly there's a lot of ironic enjoyment of the film. In fact, I think it might have been one of the films that inspired the Razzie's invention. But more so now, I think people just seriously enjoy the the bananas spectacle and the costuming and you know me on a prime level i like its sincerity <laughs> you know it, even even in its misguided way of trying to cash in on a trend that was already on the wane it's an it's an underdog that uh, me and lots of other misfit toys have taken to heart and yeah, I take a little bit of pride in a lot of pride in the fact that this was something I helped jumpstart. You yeah. know, my my 14 years at New Art had a lot of rocks and ups and downs and regrets, but I mean, you know, granted it was Mark Vallon who pulled the trigger on getting it booked and then playing it in other theaters, so he needs to get a huge hat tip as Ooh, well. Thanks Mark. But you know, I I badgered him to play it. I was running that trailer and just so I feel like I, you know, found you, you know, shepherded. This, you were the shepherd. I, fa- I found this unloved child and gave it a family. And we are so glad that you did. 
A huge thank you to Mark for joining me tonight to discuss not only the Apple, but also the history of Paragon and the relationship between Golan Globus and Canon. Before I lock up the store for today, I've got a letter from an actual customer at the original video archives who recalls their memories of what Quentin, Roger, and the other employees were like back in the day. This letter comes from Adam Groves from El Segundo, California. Dear Sirs and Gala, it seems nearly every person of my generation, the old generation, had that video store in their life. For me, that video store was video archives in both its initial Manhattan Beach location, also known as The Cave, and the second one, Two Doors Down, also known as The White Palace. Sadly, I never got around to visiting the Hermosa Beach locale. So, my listening to the Video Archives podcast is essentially the law. Thank you, then, for putting on such a passionate and engaging show. Hearing Quentin Tarantino's spirited talk about all things film brings back memories of the man enumerating the glories of Diamonds Are Forever to my 12-year-old self while Roger Avery was, and remains, Roger Avery. What the fuck does that mean? (laughs) You were never so right, Adam, as in your last statement. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. Beyond that, I know I'll always remember Q&R's fellow employee, Steve-O, who I quite liked despite a manner that might be tempted abrupt, especially on the phone. Sample telephone exchange. Me. Hi. Do you have the Werner Herzog Nosferatu? Steve-O. No. Click. <laughs> yeah, Steve-O. Actually, Steve-O used to, people would come in and say, uh, hey, do you have uh, the Barbara Streisand movie Nuts? No, but we've got Spaceballs. <laughs> <laughs> he did say that. That was Steve-O's, that was Steve-O's big video joke. <laughs> no, we don't have Barbara Streisand's Nuts. <laughs> we have Mel Brooks's Spaceballs. <laughs> There was also the much nicer Roland, who once turned my little sister away when she tried to rent Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. And who can forget the handwritten notes affixed to many of the archive's videos in which employees offered their thoughts? Example, performance, colon, this movie makes no sense. Or the, quote, no dancing sign in the adults only section, for which seemingly every guy I knew claimed to be directly responsible. Finally, they're talking, uh, he's talking about the Donald Camel film performance, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Finally, and a modest proposal. Is there any chance of a reunion show with the surviving video archives employees? I know such a reunion would be appreciated by many listeners, this one in particular. Sincerely, Adam. Uh, that might happen. There might be some different members of, uh, of the video archives uh uh, uh, employee family that may be coming by, not as guests as we ever had before, but as genuine employees for the day. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that were to happen maybe by next season. And Adam, you're right. Uh, Video Archives is the law, and Quentin is the law giver. (laughs) (laughs) Ape shall not kill ape. (laughs) And Roger is still Roger. (laughs) Roger is, as always, Roger. Roger. Oh, cut that out. Roger. (laughs) Oh, Roger. I can't believe it's taken me 30 years to figure out that joke. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now, Quentin, this name... You, do you know this customer? I don't remember the customer per se, uh, but I actually know who Adam Groves is out of El Segundo. He writes for one of my favorite uh, 
movie review magazines is Shock Cinema. Oh. And he's one of the uh, correspondents for Shock Cinema, Adam Groves, out of uh, El Segundo. He writes really good reviews for like odd video cassettes that he's found along the way. And he just reviews four or five movies every issue. Well, it sounds like as a boy, he went to Video Archives University and then uh, has graduated to Shock Cinema. Knowing that a 12-year-old boy used to come and listen to us and knows all of our names and and appreciated our uh, our tutelage and then went on to uh, uh, review obscure movies, uh, obscure B-movies for Shock Cinema magazine. That's uh, I feel very proud of our part in his lineage. We've done our, our part. Well, Adam, you're in luck because in the next episode, we actually have an employee coming to the store. Unruly Julie herself will be returning to video archives to shuffle tapes and discuss cinema behind the counter like the good old days. Stay tuned for a triple feature that is employee approved. Want to know ahead of time what we'll be watching? Here's a riddle for all of you loyal fans out there. I know you can figure this one out. The first movie was the first kaiju film to be shot in color. The second film is a British spy thriller written by a Nobel Prize winner. And the third movie is the third entry in a film series about a world of super-intelligent apes. But it's not Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I'm Mr. Boogaloo himself, Gala Avery, signing out for today. See you next time on the Video Archives After Show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 